My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. This episode features an interview I did with sociologist Lisa Kowalczuk about a recently published volume on resisting the far right that she co-edited. I also asked Lisa about her research on the working conditions of nurses in El Salvador. And finally, we chatted about St. Jamestown Stories, a podcast that Lisa co-hosts. As always, a big thanks to our Patreon supporters. We are deeply appreciative of the generosity of each and every one of you. If you too would like us to be deeply appreciative of your generosity, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and become a patron today. And with that, let's transition to my interview with Lisa. Lisa Kowalczuk is a sociologist who teaches at the University of Guelph. She is the co-editor of a recently published volume titled We Resist, Defending the Common Good in Hostile Times. Lisa also hosts St. Jamestown Stories, a podcast about life in Toronto's St. Jamestown neighborhood. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Lisa. Thank you so much, Umer. It's really, um, I really thank you for the opportunity. So uh, we have a few different things uh, we'd like to chat about, but let's start with the, the book that you've co-edited, We Resist, Defending the Common Good in Hostile Times. Could you tell us what it's about? I will, and I need to ask you, um, have you been sent the book? I have not. And actually, I meant to apologize both to you, Lisa, and to the audience, because this is maybe one of the only times that we haven't... I haven't read a book that I'm interviewing someone about. And really, the uh, I have a good excuse, I think. I think so, but yes. <laughs> the excuse is that we have a newborn. And <gasps> there's no... Came? I'm sorry, I didn't know. I was just going to say, how's, how's Sadia doing? Oh, oh my gosh, congratulations. Thanks. So as of today, he's three weeks old. And, and so Please. we're, you know, trying to figure out how to do the parenting thing. And Sadia is doing well. Uh, baby's doing great. Uh, but yeah, we're just we're just manning on, managing on a, a you know minimal levels of sleep at the moment. So I, I apologize for not for not having a good sense of the contents of the book. Uh, but hopefully you can you can fill us in. Of course. Well, you know, actually, I was remiss in not sending it to you. Um, but yeah, I can I can tell you about it. And 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 in talking about it, um, I really have to recognize my co-editor. Um, she's the lead editor, Cynthia Levine Rasky for being really mostly responsible for bringing the book to fruition, especially for the fact that it took relatively little time compared to how these things can you know, often take. She and I started talking about the idea of this um, right after the, the US election where Trump won in 2016. And, and Cynthia brings to this topic a background of doing research and teaching on uh, critical race theory and, and gender inequality and on the situation of particular immigrant communities in Canada. Like she has a book on the Roma, for example. Um, and she's also been active in um, forging ties between Jewish and Muslim women. And then in my case, you know, I have this background on research and teaching on social movements and also gender and international development and healthcare policy and healthcare workers, um, specifically nurses. So um, we wanted to have a, a Canadian take on this problem of, of the far right gaining momentum. And we wanted to have 
uh, a cross-section of voices uh, representing diverse realms of activism and, and research, and also diverse identities to inspire ideas for collective action. When we approached authors as potential authors, we, we asked them to talk about three main things. We asked them to talk about like how they would explain the recent rise of the far right, um, how, how, what kind of threat it poses to their own sphere of either activism or research, or sometimes it's both, and, and what they believe needs to be done to surmount the challenges and, and strengthen a resistance movement in Canada. So the result is a book with 42 authors and 38 chapters, which includes our introduction. And I don't want to name any of the authors, because if you do that, it kind of risks like diminishing those who seem to diminish those who don't get mentioned. But we, we organize the book into, into four broad themes, which all have a primarily Canadian focus. So we have a section called Communities or Identities of Resistance. It's not exactly what it's called. Um, a section on institutions, a section on policies, and a section on, on social movements. And um, the, the section on Communities or Identities, for that, in that section, we have each chapter addressing a particular type of oppression that their community has faced and how that's linked to the far right and how they've confronted it. And those include chapters on, for example, the, the genocidal oppression of Indigenous people in Canada. Um, there's a chapter on anti-Semitism, um, Islamophobia, um, discrimination toward people with disabilities, trans and homophobic violence, and anti-Black racism. And I must say that most of those identities or communities, they're represented again in other sections of the book. So that was not their, the only time where we see those identities kind of uh, having a voice. Um, the institutions section, we have chapters on, on healthcare policy, education, uh, policing, the media, and sports. And then for policies, we have um, chapters dealing with climate change, um, citizenship law and refugees, and, and also austerity and, and the policy, policies that, that perpetuate poverty. And for social movements, that kind of, that kind of speaks for itself. Um, it's pretty wide ranging and um, it includes a chapter that discusses um, Antifa, the sort of the debate about Antifa. Um, yeah, and the book came out just uh, in the middle of May, actually, not too long after the pandemic um, was uh, recognized. And so in terms of impact, I think it's sort of too soon to know the impact. Um, the press, McGill Queen's Press, um, sent the book to a number of potential reviewers. Um, but we, it did sort of feel like the pandemic, it did affect our plans for, for example, for a book launch and other kinds of promotional activities. And I think it kind of diverted the public's attention away from these kinds of issues, at least temporarily. Um, yeah, so I'll just leave it there and see what you want to ask about it. For sure, yeah. So, I mean, what are some of the arguments in the book? I know that that's a very, like, yeah, I'm asking you to point to very specific things in, in a volume that's wide-ranging. But I think a, a bit of a specific focus would also help to get a sense of things. Well, um, it might help to for me to tell you a little bit about how we, as the co-editors, sort of introduce the book and how we situate it. Um, the title needs dissecting, obviously. It needs it needs explaining. Um, you know, we, we talk about what do we actually mean by the common good that we want to defend, and there we're talking about really attaining the, the full range of human capabilities, but also social and social equality and the health of the natural environment and ecosystems. And um, I could also mention that there's there's an important time horizon there because it's not just the common good right now, but we think about generations to come and a kind of interdependence of generations in that sense. Um, and what we mean by the hostile times is we, we're 
primarily thinking about the rise of xenophobic nativist groups, these sort of hate-based groups that have been surging, um, certainly before the Trump victory, and um, but certainly fueled by that event. Um, but also looking at the erosion of democratic institutions around the world, you know, trade unions and, and, the, and the media, free, free press, public education. It also encompasses the pattern, a kind of pattern of de-democratization occurring in many countries, pretty much always under ultra-right regimes, and um, increases in human rights atrocities um, in, in various countries. And then we also talk about, well, how did we get here? Like, what, what brought us to this? And we, we make the argument that it has to do with, greatly to do with the sort of turn toward market fundamentalism and, and neoliberalism starting in the early 1980s. And that's intertwined, of course, with the drastic rise in, in socioeconomic inequality, which makes transnational elites in the corporate realm and financial realm much less accountable. And we also talk a little bit about, well, how how is it linked? Like how, what's the nexus between the rise of the far right and neoliberalism and the increasing power of, of these super elites? And it's a bit speculative. And some of our authors actually explicitly comment on this, but part of the issue is that there's more money behind campaigns of misinformation that, that strengthen far right groups and that kind of fragment the capacity to resist. But you can't also ignore social media, uh, which gives a venue for that misinformation, but the social media has a, a kind of separate effect too, which is to kind of give a home to far-right groups. So even though those far-right groups are not necessarily that cohesive and they're very fragmented and, and not that long-lasting, but they do find an ability to network within and across countries in, in social media um, and to get their ideas out there, which can lead to lone wolf attacks and that kind of thing. And then also the problem of mainstream media, the, the deregulation and, and it leading to concentration of it and kind of mixing entertainment with news and which kind of serves to amplify those messages of, of elites. Um, in terms of what we mean by resistance, uh, we're talking about, well, we have in mind our social movements that are active mainly outside of institutional channels, but we're also thinking about progressive forces and activism inside of institutional channels. And I think it's important to to keep in mind that in some country contexts and some time periods, just running for office can be quite politically dangerous and, and radical. And then in terms of the author's arguments, you're right, Mayor, it is hard to, to summarize or draw common threads, but in terms of what they're calling for, there are some common threads and perhaps the, the most recurring um, statement is a call for alliance building between or across different sectors and, and, and different identities. A number of the authors, again and again, call also for critical education to get past certain kinds of myths, like, I don't know, the myth that hockey is this national nation-building kind of um, broadly inclusive sport. Um, we have a chapter that kind of deb debunks that. Um, it's basketball. Uh, yeah, well, actually, right, or, or soccer, or football is, is it would be more likely to refer to it. Um, a number of the authors bring out specific policy change agendas that have been very well thought out, things like defunding the police. And a number of the authors talk about taking lessons from successful activism, um, usually collective, but sometimes individual um, activism of the past or of the recent past or, or not so recent past. So, so drawing lessons from those are, are things that, uh, that many of the authors talk about based on their own experience or their historical research. So you mentioned that uh, the book was, it, it came out during the pandemic, and of course it was written and put together before the pandemic. The insights in the book, how do they look in light of the ongoing pandemic 
does it change things or does it just kind of show that the, the insights are even more relevant? Well, a bit of both, but probably more the latter. So I think it shows that the insights are, are highly relevant. The book came out before sort of latest resurgence of a movement for Black lives. But nevertheless, we have authors talking about that. And, and so I think they would find that the current events show that their arguments and analysis are, are spot on, actually. Um, in terms of, we have at least one chapter on, on healthcare policy, I think two actually, although, not, although neither of those authors talked about pandemic preparedness, but they certainly talk about ways that austerity has limited our ability to respond to, to health crises. And I said that in part, the book might be reshaped a little if we, ha- if we could see the pandemic coming. I think maybe we could have had, it would have been interesting to have a chapter just simply on emergency preparedness and, and community resilience. Um, that might have been something that would be interesting to, to feature, although it might have taken us a little bit away from resistance of the far right. It would be maybe difficult or challenging to bring those things together. But I think that the arguments are shown to be all the more relevant in, in, in present times. Right. Yeah, COVID is just the same old thing, but in a very sharply felt way. Absolutely. We have a chapter, I should mention too, um, written by one of, one of Canada's leading anti-poverty activists. And he's been writing about the pandemic since then. I should just mention him as John Clark. Um, I think that the pandemic has shown, you know, just sort of highlighted how these inequalities become become so exacerbated by a, a crisis like the like the present one that the people most affected not just in biomedical terms but also and so they're in their exposure to risk by being essential workers but not being sufficiently protected but but also the the prevention methods of so the the efforts to prevent transmission also hurt racialized groups and immigrants and those living close to or under the poverty line those who are renting it shows that in such high relief. So that chapter in particular would be, if, if we could have a footnote, a, a few paragraphs extra on that, it would be kind of, um, it would have been ideal. But of course, the book came out when it did. So, And the elderly, they're the you know major victim here in Canada. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where uh, can people find a copy of the book? Well, as far as I know, definitely the book is in the mainstream bookstores such as Indigo. Um, however, I believe it's also found in independent bookstores. Um, book City may carry this book. Probably, I don't want to say the leading um, delivery company that has um, uh, fulfillment centers everywhere. I'm not going to mention them because I don't think anyone should buy anything from them. But I, I would try at independent bookstores. I think um, that they it, you might have luck there. Right. And I see that on the, uh, the McGill-Queens University web. Uh, the press website that that you can get it there as well oh so you could buy directly from the press that's that's good thank you for pointing that out i should have known that and and there's an ebook available from what i can tell oh that's very good thank you so i but let's broaden out a bit if we can because you have uh, I, i imagine other interests as well and you have other work that you do uh and have done but let's start with the fact that you are a sociologist could you tell us what sociologists do? And maybe the way to frame this would be, uh, how does sociology differ, for instance, from political science or anthropology? Sure, let me see if I can answer that succinctly. Well, there's a lot of overlap. 
I might say that sociology is the study of how people behave in groups and how their behavior generates ideology and the interplay between those things. Whereas political scientists will tend to look much more at the actions of states and interactions between governments and between different levels of government as well. And then if they look to the extent that they look at people's behavior, there is some attention to social movements, but um, it might be more in terms of electoral, how how it impacts on elections and so on, whereas sociology is more multi-purpose. There's almost a sociology of everything, (laughs) I could almost say. Um, Certainly crime and justice is there, gender, uh, social movements is a mainstay of, um, of sociology. We might say that the study of social movements as a kind of formalized study kind of came out of sociology. I mean, I don't know if others, your listeners might object to that. Political science is certainly important there as well, um, certainly. I mean, I teach in a department that's combined sociology and anthropology, and we see very much an overlap between our methods of research you know, sociologists and anthropologists alike will tend to use ethnographic forms of collecting data, which means, um, you know, in-depth interviews with people, uh, observing uh, people, as well as just reviewing um, literature on the history that might not be accessible through face-to-face interviews. Where they might differ, sociologists might, there's a, a branch in sociology that is very much all about using quantitative methods to make their work you know, what they, they might say that makes it scientific. However, I think to me, it's quite clear that social studies is scientific, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. The science is about being rigorous and being systematic in, in, in the data collection. Okay, so um, as a sociologist, what is your particular line of work or research? Well, from the start of my um, career as an academic, and including, you know, the, the period of time doing my um, doctoral dissertation studies, my PhD dissertation. Yeah, and I should mention in case your in case your listeners may not all know that academics who are who are tenured or tenure track, we have this privilege where we are able to do research, and in fact, we're expected to do research. It it need not be with human participants or human subjects, if you want to call them that. It they're people who make their um, research out of examination of archives or literature uh, and, and so on. But in my case, I do ethnographic research and the topic, the predominant topic of my research, which has also been a big part of my teaching, has been on social movements. And so I happen to have chosen for much of my career to do my research out of the country, uh, doing research in, in Central America, especially in El Salvador, where I did research on um, the politics of land reform and, and social movements around that. And also kind of extending from there to look at um, the politics of, um, of healthcare reform and efforts to privatize the public healthcare system and looking at a, a vast, b- really broad multi-sectoral movement that emerged to push back on that and ultimately to stop that. So social movements have been really big part of my research. I also more recently kind of extended my focus on healthcare policy and healthcare movements to look at the situation of like the, the labor conditions of of nurses as a particular kind of healthcare worker whose um, voices were not that audible in the the anti-privatization healthcare movement in El Salvador. So I wanted to understand, well, where were they at and what were their conditions like? And I did a a study of how nurses in El Salvador and Nicaragua were faring 
under a regime change that happened around the same time in both countries, toward the end of the 2010s, where both countries experienced um, um, a shift to the left and away from neoliberal policies in, in, in healthcare and other realms. So I investigated to see, well, what did that mean for nurses? How were they doing before that time under fairly far-right administrations? And what difference did it make when those regimes turned to the left? So I spent um, a few years looking at that. And then more recently, I've decided to focus my research um, locally here in Canada and more specifically, fairly close to where I live in Toronto, um, to look at a particular neighborhood. And that happens to be the neighborhood where the podcast um, focuses. And if you want, um, I could explain why I did that. But I don't know if you have other ancillary questions uh, before getting to that. Well, actually, I'd be interested to learn a bit more about what you found in your study about the nurses. Um, yeah, what were your findings? Yeah, um, that so in that research, I found that there wasn't the, the nurses in El Salvador are doing a little bit better than in Nicaragua, but in neither case was there a dramatic restoration of cutbacks in nursing staff that happened under the previous regimes. Um, so there was sort of a continuation for the most part, of a kind of devaluing of, of women's labor and the kind of the expectation that women w- are born to do this work and it's a vocation. And with it being a vocation, then it doesn't really then fit to demand um, labor rights. And so I, also, I found also that there were no specific unions just for nurses in either country. In El Salvador, an incipient nurses union was forming, but for the most part, it's the nurses professional associations, which um, are the main bodies that the nurses turn to. Not that they're all they're not all members of those associations, but there's very little nurse unionization. In, in Nicaragua, there is a broader healthcare workers union, um, which encompasses a lot of nurses, but it's really it really lacks independence. There was a really um, disturbing lack of independence and um, a kind of curbing of any any kind of independent thought by nurses to kind of clamor for their own um, for improvement in their own conditions, um, starting with better staffing, um, which would lead to more reasonable hours and and uh, also to pay them better. Because certainly in Nicaragua, the nurses are pretty much the worst paid in, in Latin America. At least they're a little better paid um, in El Salvador. So the regime change didn't really make any, I won't say any difference. In El Salvador, there was a difference because um, what happened in El Salvador was that there was a kind of a healthcare reform, actually, a very progressive healthcare reform. And so part of that meant um, increasing primary care all over the country with the creation of hundreds of new primary care clinics. And that meant staffing. So there was um, uh, an increase in hiring of, of nurses um, to be those primary care um, healthcare workers. Multidisciplinary healthcare teams were formed to cover the, the entire country. So that did make a difference for nurses in terms of more more jobs for nurses, but in in existing clinical settings where the staffing was was cut in previous years, there really wasn't anything done to restore those uh, staffing levels. So that's really interesting that you say that there. I, uh, from what I can maybe try and summarize or, or understand, that existing gender norms are used to ensure that rather than being able to to create collective organizational means to fight for their rights that there's a sort of atomized and ultimately paternalistic sort of relationship with, with employers or, or at the place of work. Is that a, uh, a fair characterization? It is a very fair characterization, actually, yes. 
Um, and it, just like everywhere, um, like even in Canada, Trump, something like 90% of nurses are women. Um, you see the same gender um, uh, division of labor in, in Central America as well. So the vast majority are women. There are, there are male nurses as well, of course. Um, but that is a, a kind of gendered expectation for sure. Well, okay, so let's uh, talk about, uh, let's shift gears here a little bit and, and talk about your, your recent switch to Canada. So as you said, you are now a bit more focused on uh, a Toronto-based neighborhood, St. Jamestown, where you do, uh, I think you volunteer and you do some of your research and you have a podcast that's based in that neighborhood and it's about that neighborhood. So maybe to start with, uh, could you tell us what St. Jamestown is? Sure. Um, so, and I should say really um, that there are countless people who are far better informed than I am about the neighborhood. I'm still in, in early stages of understanding it, but it is um, a neighborhood in the downtown east of, of Toronto. It's uh, northern part, no northern border would be Bloor Street. The southern border is considered to be Wellesley and Parliament Street on the east and um, Sherburne on, on the west. Um, it's an area of about 8.2 acres and often it's it's widely said to be the densest neighborhood and most densely populated neighborhood in Canada some even say North America it's a high rise based vertical neighborhood um mostly consisting of uh, about eight, 19 um apartment buildings high rise buildings of those four of those are Toronto um community housing buildings um it's a really fascinating uh, neighborhood because it's some, some consider it to be kind of like a, a landing strip for new newcomers to Canada. The, it's a pretty high proportion of the population is made up of first-generation immigrants. It's something like two-thirds, which is, which is quite a bit higher than for Toronto as a whole. It's only about 46% for Toronto as a whole. And a high proportion of visible minorities as well, like about 67% of the population. This data, by the way, I'm pulling from the 2016 census. It's fascinating for its history in terms of it was planned by developers and politicians to be um, supposed to be a kind of magnet for young urban professionals that would be starting out in middle-class careers. But that didn't turn out to be the case because those young urban professionals ended up wanting to move more into suburban areas. So it didn't live up to that and it, it defied that expectation. And I, there's some excellent work on this by um, a historian named Carolyn Witzman and others as well have written on this, but it became instead a place where the population tends to have um, bit by bit, like the income level became kind of lower than the average um, for, for, the, for the city and even for the ward where it's located in, in Toronto center. Um, so lower than average incomes. Um, and along with that also, the poverty rate of households tends to be higher as well. And there are other kinds of problems kind of come with that. Like there's a higher proportion of people in St. Jamestown who officially live in, in unaffordable, um, their, their housing is unaffordable because they spend more than 30% of their income on, on housing. So qu quite a bit higher percentage of St. Jamestown residents are in that situation compared to the rest of Toronto. Who in Toronto spends less than 30% of their income on rent? Well, the standard, like you're saying, like that, that kind of um, cutoff point is debatable, um, especially in Toronto. Like there are people who certainly debate that as whether that should be the actual cutoff point of what constitutes um, uh, affordable versus unaffordable housing. And that becomes a debate as well when there's new developments and a certain number of units are 
committed to be or, or promised to be affordable. And they, they use that cutoff point, which becomes sort of a football. And I think for good reason, but that's a good point. I mean, I just to say, I, I, most people I know probably spend like half of you know their income or more on on housing. Yeah. But anyway, the the point you're making is that there's this is disproportionately the case uh, in in St. Jamestown. Yeah, and the how like so it's a it's a it's a community of, of a lot of contradictions because the buildings are getting old, so they're part. Of, it's part of this aging stock of rental buildings in in the city. Like they're now like some of them are, are approaching fifty years old and. The state of repair is rather low in some of them. And there's really strong evidence of that, very dramatic evidence of that. For example, in probably the most dramatic incident of the past few years was the fire of 2018, a, a pretty dramatic blaze at 650 Parliament, which um, caused 1,500 people to be displaced from their homes. And just the whole incident was really quite terrifying and traumatic for people. Um, there were no injuries as far as I know, but, but people didn't, being displaced for that length of time. And only coming back to the building, they started to move back in just as the pandemic was starting. So that incident, but there have been an, a, a series of other like incidents of um, kind of crises in the buildings uh, pertaining to poor wiring or something wrong with the electricity system, flooding, uh, hydro failures, and, and so on. So, so those are the, is the kind of social problem. But there's a lot of vibrancy in the community as well. The, the more you look at it, you, the more you see that there's more happening in terms of people who come together in various ways, you know, for um, supporting one another in different ways, ethnic associations, tenants associations, and, and so on. And, you know, as, as so many of the um, residents are, are first-generation immigrants, a, a lot of those folks are fairly, quite highly educated. So though incomes are lower, that's an indication of, of sub-employment, of course. You know, they're not employed to the level that they, that they really should be. And I became interested in the neighborhood when I was helping, a, I was part of a group that helped to settle a Syrian family, and that's where they, they ended up moving. Um, so I started to notice the neighborhood more, and I did a little bit of electoral door knocking in that neighborhood in the 2014 um, election campaign. So, so and I, I, you know, I, I will say I'm still, there's still so much to learn about it, um, but that, those are some of the highlights. And I could also say maybe in terms of demographic features, and these are characteristics that um, you can find in, uh, in census data. If we look at just like proportions of people who live alone, so there turns out to be a lot, a lot more people who live alone in St. Jamestown compared to the rest of Toronto. So something like 47% are single person households compared to 32% for the city as a whole. And, and and a lot more seniors living alone. So something like 50% versus 26% for the, for the city as a whole. So those are some interesting characteristics as well that draw attention to it. If we think about, you know, what are the kinds of social determinants of health? Of course, um, of course, poverty and, and um, income disparities and racialization, but also that kind of demographic feature of, of people living alone and in high-rise buildings. Right, and and you have uh, you are the host or one of the hosts of a podcast, as we've mentioned, uh, called uh, Saint Jamestown Stories, uh, and the podcast often or the the episodes you've done so far feature you know what you mentioned that, like self help groups and organizations that are trying to to improve conditions in the neighborhood. So, could you tell us about the the podcast and some more about some of the organizing that's going on? Um, sure. So I must say that what we ended up producing diverged quite a bit from the carefully crafted plans that we had in place before the pandemic um, struck. 
like we had initially the intention to do a few main things with the podcast. We wanted to explore the structural roots, the historical roots of, of some of the persistent problems um, in St. Jamestown, but we also wanted to show ways that residents unite and come together, whether it's forming tenant associations or forming groups to overcome isolation and that sort of thing. Um, and we also wanted to look at accomplishments in, in the, for example, in the artistic realm and the cultural realm by featuring stories of musicians and artists and, and using the website of the podcast to give a glimpse of what those people produce. Um, when, it, when I say we wanted to look at historical, the roots of problems, I wanted to, I was particularly thinking about housing safety and landlords responsiveness to residents' living conditions. And I was also thinking about social isolation being quite a problem in large cities, increasingly recognized as a problem as a social determinant of health. And the goals of all this were to, to destigmatize the neighborhood, to visibilize the neighborhood. Usually, I mean, it's usually absent from the from news media coverage unless there are problems or crises going on. So we wanted to kind of, you know, address that kind of a local news poverty problem that, that exists. Uh, we wanted to provide also information to residents, uh, kind of practical information on themes that would be useful to them, like themes like the, like the rights of precarious workers or defending against um, consumer scams or ripoffs like payday loans and, and provide information about how how to form tenants associations and what good what do they do. Um, and that would be based on the experience of tenant associations that that exist there. So uh, and and you're you're right, there's I have a co-host. Um, so I managed to meet this person, Daryl D'Souza, who is a resident of St. Jamestown. We met because we were both volunteering in a food security advocacy group in St. Jamestown. The group is called Oasis. We met in the summer of 2019 and he happened to have a background in journalism and he liked the idea of the podcast. So he was willing to work with it on me and he became the co-host. So we, we decided that in the short term, we would produce episodes as a team of two, but in the medium term, we wanted to find funding to pay a, a little team of residents to bring a few more people into the production team. And I did apply for a small grant uh, but so far, I haven't been successful in that in that respect. But I mentioned that what we ended up doing diverged from our our initial plans. Um, and at first, when the pandemic hit, we just set out. We just we were in the midst of doing outreach to see if people would talk to us about the issues that we want to talk about. And we just kind of shelved it off for a while. And then we realized that it could actually be possible to talk to people about how they were coping with the pandemic and and how agencies and organizations were responding to that to support them. And it seems quite important to shine some light on this kind of community, how it's experiencing and dealing with the pandemic, because it already had some features that were challenging, like like a lack of, in, of um, outdoor recreational space, like green space, um, as I mentioned, lower than average um, household incomes, and presumably more people who would be affected by um, either occupations that put them at risk or um, occupations that would be cut and hours would be cut. The neighborhood also being underserved, underserviced with programs for youth and healthcare and so on. And also the high-rise nature, like the, it's almost entirely high-rise based. So obviously in a pandemic, the use of elevators and so on. Um, so, so the plan for delving into those bigger topics is kind of on hold for now. Instead, we made, um, we made five episodes about a half hour each on coping with COVID. And that was the, was the first part of the title of each episode. And then there'd be specific focuses um, within that. And they feature the voices of residents of different kinds and also the voices of uh, staff of agencies that are that, that uh, pivoted to help um, in the crisis. And we just to mention that uh, one of the themes that, that came up repeatedly, probably the most common theme that came up was food insecurity, which was a problem that was there all along. 
Um, but of course, it was so much worsened by the pandemic. It turned out that three of the episodes end up touching on that or dealing with it in one way or another. I think if we if we had produced more episodes later in the summer, we would have been able to profile ways that people have have acted on additional needs like um, seniors' needs for togetherness. Although we did touch on that in one of the episodes, um, ways of keeping children active and stimulated, and and so on. I would have also liked to like it's a little bit. I must say that um, the episode production is kind of on pause just at the moment. And one thing I'm concerned about is how people in St. Jamestown are managing with rent payments, particularly in light of of this Bill 184 that was that was passed um, late in the summer, middle of the summer, despite enormous opposition. And things like how parents of, of children are coping with this sort of chaotic process of returning to school. But those are issues I, I hope to learn about in um, a research project that I'm just starting right now, which in a way kind of springs out of the podcast, or maybe the podcast, better said, kind of paved the way to be able to do um, the research. Uh, could you clarify what Bill 184 is for listeners who might not know? Um, it's it's nicknamed the evictions bill, but it has a more a more formal, longer title. And what this bill enables, um, it sounds kind of nice in in the title of it, but it actually enables landlords to compel tenants to um, to enter agreements where they must pay them on uh, some kind of a schedule. Um, and if the tenant misses uh, a payment, um, then they can be brought before the tenants board. Um, without being able to make a case for themselves. So it really weakens the stance of um, of tenants and strengthens the hand of landlords um, quite a bit. And it also does away with, uh, you, you're probably aware that the, around the beginning of the pandemic, there was a moratorium on evictions. Um, this bill came into effect just around, just a little bit before that moratorium was lifted, which I think was in early August. And this bill came into effect just, just before that. And okay, so how... How is the neighborhood faring given the the pandemic? Well, it's a it's kind of um that's a good question, and i'm I'm actually hoping to be able to address that more fully with the in-depth research that I'm just starting to do. And I can talk a little bit about that. But I mean, one thing I can say is that what was on what was evident is that neighbors were responding to help one another in a kind of ad hoc way in many, many ways even very low income um, people were were rushing to do whatever they could for their for their fellow residents. So there were people sewing masks, for example, um, there were people um, donating items that that might be needed. There was also a great deal of um, response by let me just give an example in, in one of the buildings and this may have been happening in other buildings as well. Um, then the residents of this building actually is at 77 Howard through being organized by an organization called CREW, which stands for Community um, Resilience to Emergency Weather. They, um, they actually helped to prepare the residents of this building long before the pandemic to be ready for emergencies. So to have networks with one another, to know uh, what to do when a crisis would happen, which they envisioned might be something like a hydroelectricity blackout or that sort of thing. They probably didn't quite envision something like a pandemic, but in that particular building, residents were already kind of organized and networked with one another. So they were able to really look in and on and look after one another and respond to their needs. And they were able to quickly figure out, well, who are the folks who really needed um, um, help with getting food? If they couldn't leave their apartments because they were immune compromised or they had mobility issues, they were able to make a quick list of of those folks um, and to get that information to crisis responding agencies. And so there was quite a mobilization among the agencies as well, a lot of collaboration between that grassroots group and service providing agencies to provide um, 
uh, groceries, uh, and, and also uh, fairly soon uh, a program of uh, prepared meals uh, was also implemented. Um, so those were delivered all over the neighborhood. Um, a number of different organizations were involved, certainly St. Jamestown Community Corner being a really important provider in this way, a really amazing responder. There's also an organization that's outside of St. Jamestown, but does serve St. Jamestown, especially the seniors, and it's called Progress Place. And it's actually an organization for mental wellness, where people um, become members um, and take on activities and responsibilities and help one another integrate into society. Uh, Well, they're already integrated, but to take on more roles and gain their confidence and so on. So they also responded in, in making meals that were delivered to seniors in St. Jamestown. So currently your uh, podcast project is on hold, right? That's correct. But people can, of course, listen to the the episodes that have already been published, so five of them. That's right. And there's also a website, um, and each of the episodes has a transcription. We wanted to do that so that it would sort of enhance the accessibility of, of, each, um, of each episode. And um, there's also show notes. Uh, I think you guys do show notes. Sorry that I don't, I should know this, but... Um, most like a lot of podcasts have episode notes, so we have a quite an extensive episode notes with with photographs of of people, the volunteers, the and their activities, and um, some of the residents as well, and and so on. We don't do that. <laughs> Maybe we should, but I just find that after the doing all of the audio production, there's very little time for for other things. Um, so that that sort of thing gets left out. Well, it's super challenging. Like, I think that in this case, we wanted, like, it seemed to, it seemed that a web a website really makes sense for this um, podcast because it has a sort of community development kind of angle to it. And, and so it, it made sense to do that. But it, realistically, one has to budget the time and also find funds to, to do this. Like, in the end, I paid someone to do, um, to do the episode editing because I didn't have the capacity or the time to train myself. And I, I know I was asking you for advice about how, how to do this. And in the end, between production, because we did a weekly, um, weekly, weekly release of episodes, and it was a very intense, it was a far too intense schedule. It, our initial plan was to do it bi-weekly and to have like just 20 minutes of bi- bi-weekly. And we ended up having half hour weekly, which was um, sort of a recipe for, for burnout. Uh, it was not sustainable. Okay, well, but people, of course, can still subscribe to the podcast to listen to what's already there. And then you're hoping that in the future, you will uh, release more content. I will. And um, one of the ways, like one of the ways that I'll do that is because I'm embarking on this research project, which kind of kind of sprang out of the podcast and um, project in a certain way, is that uh, one of the outcomes of the research findings will be to produce um, a couple of special episodes of the podcast aimed at residents in particular, residents of the neighborhood, to kind of provide practical information about how to navigate what's coming in this, in what remains of this pandemic crisis, and how to be prepared um, for future crisis of this kind, and how these, there can also be intersecting crises, um, how, pe- you know, kind of give people tools for navigating that. Um, the project I'm working on, I, I've I'm hired um, uh, three residents of the neighborhood to, among other things, to collect data through interviewing fellow residents of different types and different categories. Um, you know, how are different types of folks being affected? What are their worst fears, but how have they been coping? What are some of the best coping methods and how can that be supported better by external resources from government or other sources?
Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. There will be a link to the website where you can purchase We Resist Defending the Common Good in Hostile Times. And I will also link the website to the St. Jamestown Stories podcast. Remember that you can support Oats for Breakfast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Any amount of support goes a long way. Another way to help us out is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so by writing to contact at oatspodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again very soon.